Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to the Apex Hour. Uh, this is Lynn Vartan, a curator of Apex Events, and we are celebrating Halloween this week. And I've got a ton of people to talk to. So joining me in the studio is Todd Peterson, who is an author and uh, just has a great new book that's out. We want to talk about that. And it's also a faculty member at SUU. And also Christopher Clark, who is one of our uh, awesome library faculty and um, outreach event coordinator for our libraries here at SUU. So welcome to you two that are in the studio. Hi, it's great to be here. (laughs) And joining us uh, remotely is the author, Brian Evanson. And we are so excited to talk about writing for the horror genre. So welcome, Brian. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Well, cool. We want to start by talking about all the different connections between you guys. And I'd love to start by just kind of talking briefly about the connection between Brian and Todd. Now, you guys know each other from way back. Um, Todd, tell me about it. Well, Brian and I met when he was in graduate school in Seattle, and I was living there working for the YMCA, and we kind of crossed paths and... uh Brian, I, I guess, left in graduate school and started his career, and I started getting the idea from him that maybe I could do something a lot like that. And so as he kind of moved from school to school, I kind of caught up and worked on a master's a little bit and then got some ideas about a PhD and then ended up, um, we crossed paths in Oklahoma uh, State, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where I went to study with him and then he was there for a period of time and then moved on to Denver and to Brown and to other places. And then I came here. And um, so it was just really interesting and great to be able to, um, it's for a lot more years than I guess I would care to imagine at this (laughs) point. Um, But yeah, I met him when he was just starting things and when his kids were tiny babies. And now I have a kid that goes to school here. So just, there's been a lot of time and water under the bridge, but that's how I sort of became familiar with him. And a lot of the things that I talk about, like we did today at Apex and whatever, are a lot of, it's based in a lot of ways on having been a student and then also sort of having my own career launched um, under his guidance and uh, with some of the things that he's given me direction on. But it was really in Oklahoma where we got to spend uh, a lot of good years together, kind of learning and, and moving ahead. That's so cool. He was also kind enough to get me started on my first book. I was writing some stories. And he pulled me into his office and said, you know what? You should do a book of these. And I wasn't even thinking about it at the time. Oh, wow. And so it was a really good kind of catalyst moment. And I try to duplicate that with my own students every now and then, just kind of pull them in and say, hey, psst, come here. Let's talk. <laughs> what a great model. Brian, what do you remember about Todd from those early days? Well, you know, I, Todd was always a really dedicated um, uh, reader and thinker and student. 
and was kind of game to to try different things. But but the thing I remember from like very early on, I think his his work had a kind of wicked sense of humor to it. And um, he also, you know, was always kind of interested in thinking about um, people in rural situations who are, are kind of have complex worldviews, if that makes any sense. Mm. And, and that's something that I just was, I've been pleased to see how that's developed. And also, you know, what, what else he's added to that um, kind of as time, time's gone on. So That's so cool. I guess I can say with the new book, I haven't really deviated from people in rural situations with complex worldviews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that might that might be my obsessive subject. Right. Yeah, well, the kind of people that you might be nervous about having to have Thanksgiving with in some way. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. let's take a quick minute to talk about your new book, Todd. I want to give you a chance to tell all of our listeners about it. Oh, well, my publicity people are going to be psyched about this. So I have a novel called Picnic in the Ruins, um, which is uh, a, kind of a crime story. I pitched it as Fargo in the Four Corners. <laughs> Um, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan, and that may be where the thing that Brian's talking about came into place. But I thought it would be really fun to see if I could sort of transplant some of the things that you might see in Fargo, both the film and the television series, into some of the things that were going on around here. And a book that Brian got me reading, too, was really uh, integral to that, um, uh, The Restraint of Beasts by Magnus Mills. Mm. Um, which is this great, I, I don't want to give too much away, but it's just basically about some, some rural guys building fence. <laughs> and, um, I started getting interested in that kind of idea about, because Southern Utah has got its own whole menagerie of crazy folks. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'm saying this on the radio <laughs> and we love you for it. <laughs> we love you for it. But then at the same time, I was doing a lot of work with the national parks and learning a lot about antiquities theft and how it was becoming increasingly a larger part of the burden of their duties, not just to make sure that the parks were working, but to also be investigating these crimes. Um, and some of which were surrounded with violence and with murder and mayhem. And so the whole thing just kind of came together in a way that's a whole lot more real, I think, than anybody even imagined. And mm. my agent, who is, does work with all kinds of crime writers, was like, really, do you going to have the guns in here? And I said, oh, my gosh, Nat. <laughs> Southern Utah is all guns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of how it all pulled together. But that, that book is coming out in um, January, uh, on January 5th. And hopefully it will come into a world in which the things that I speak of as the current administration will be different than what they are right now. It was very interesting to be working on a book that was trying to tell a, a fictional story, but also that story was unfolding yeah. in the political sphere. Like I would look at the Salt Lake Tribune and the story about what I was writing would be coming from Bears Ears or Escalante Grand Staircase right. um, and and all these policies about retracting federal land. That's all kind of boiled down into this story. Yeah. And we're speaking on October uh, 29th, 2020, and, and the book comes out. Well, we have an election next week and then the book comes out in January of 2021. That's, that's good to orient. Yeah. And it's called Picnic in the Ruins. Okay, well then, uh, we want to get, I'm going to get Chris, I have questions lined up for you, but let's give a plug for Brian's newest book, which is coming out next year. So Brian, t- before we get into talking about books that are already out, tell us about the book that's uh, coming out next. So so I have a new book of stories, which is coming out in August of, of 2021, uh, which is called The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. 
Um, it's a book of stories. Um, it has a story of that title and, and a number of other things, kind of scary, uh, creepy stories for the most part, uh, you know, some other directions as well. Um, but uh, yeah, kind of moving, you know, not dissimilar if you know my work, of uh, uh, kind of moving in a similar place. Oh, I can't wait. The title's fantastic. People probably ask you all the time about your titles. Do you have any comments on where the titles come from? Well, so it, it changes from book to book, obviously. Um, I, I wish I just had like a title repository I could always dry on. Um, but this one is from, there's a, a writer named Marguerite Young, um, who actually has a weird connection to, to Mormonism. She had relatives that were related to Brigham Young. Ah. And, and her work, uh, she has a book which is called Miss Macintosh, My Darling, which is massive. It's something like 1,700 pages. Whoa. Um, but that's a line from within that book. And I just, I think it's like one of the best long novels uh, uh, ever written in, in at least in American uh, literature, but, but kind of, I think much, much wider than that. Really, really complex and interesting and, and uh, almost hallucinatory sometimes and just very, very ambitious and very good. So it, it came from a line in that and I totally took it because I loved the line and stole it and used it in a way that she probably, if she was still alive, wouldn't, wouldn't be super happy about, but oh well. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for sharing that story. Well, Christopher, I want to know, you kind of came to Brian's work as a consumer, uh, as a reader. So I know you gave us a little bit of a, how, how you kind of came to it, but I'd love to know like what specifically about Brian's work entrances you and, and just your experience of kind of coming to know his writing. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I have always been uh, a reader and a fan of horror and dark fiction. Um, and I, the kinds of dark fiction I was always drawn to most are those that are um, really kind of strange and more about creating a sense of the eerie, you know, uh, and, and, and a sense of dislocation and uh, uh, things not quite being right. Um, one of my the earliest writers that I encountered that did this really well was uh, Ramsey Campbell. And I, uh, I remember reading uh, Brian's work and just seeing the same kinds of echoes um, that I identified so much with uh, Ramsey's work. Cause you can start out with something very mundane or, um, or quotidian and then slowly it, it you know, almost before you realize it, uh, you've taken a turn or a shift and, and, uh, it's just a sense of things being, um, very uncomfortable and borders being kind of unstable. Yeah. And, and so I get, I don't, I don't know how clear of an answer that is, but that's kind of the quality that I'm drawn to in Brian's work and, uh, in horror more generally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, when you, Brian, when you read your work and also read about it, the, the thing that, people always talk about is that it's this very disarming, uh, you know, disquieting sense of things that stays with you for, for forever. I mean, stays with you very, very, very much after the fact. Um, did you always know that 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 staying with someone after the fact, I suppose that's what everybody wants, every writer wants, but did you know that would that effect would be in place? Um. No, I mean, I think that's something that I've, I've worked on a lot over the years. And, and, you know, that's something that in the, the work that I like the best that I, that I read, the books I read that I like the best 
um, they managed to do that. They're books I keep on thinking about and that keep on haunting me after I put them down. And so I think, you know, probably some of my stories do that more than others, but that's always the goal is to kind of um, have something that, that continues to work on the reader after the book has been put down and that maybe changes you a little bit and makes you rethink your, your whole sense of your notion of the world. It's absolutely been my experience last month, about a month ago, in preparation, I read The Open Curtain, and oh. I just can't stop thinking about it. And, and it, and the foreword or the introduction says, you know, this is going to stay with you. And it really stays with you, but, but not maybe in the, in the traditional sense of like a scary movie kind of thing. It's more the mm -hmm. psychological uh, imbalance. And so that's just masterful. So thank you for thank that. You. You bet. And that's, that's set in Utah, that particular book, The Open Curtain. And so much of it is about um, places that I knew when I was, when I was growing up. Um, it's, part of it takes place on BYU campus, and a lot is in Provo and Springville, and, and then, yeah, it gets weirder from there. Yeah, and I really also appreciated your afterword uh, in it as well, because um, reading that book, living in Utah, I was, you know, really struck by, um, you know, just how in depth you went into a lot of the different aspects of, of the dominant religion and these kinds of things. And then just to hear your story afterward, um, mm -hmm. was really fascinating, too. So maybe we could get into that a little bit more when we come back. But we're already up to our first musical break. I asked Todd for some recommendations today. And Todd, you told me about Corey Wong, who I didn't know. How did you come to find Corey Wong? Well, Corey Wong's the lead guitar player for this kind of wacky um, funk ensemble called Wolfpack. And um, they they kind of are an interesting 21st century band. They don't I don't think they have a label. I don't think they have a manager, but they sold out Madison Square Garden for two days. Um, so they're this kind of phenomenon of kind of joy music. And so Corey just released uh, a new record called The Stripe Album. He's really pretty excited about it. I think he did a lot of the recording during the pandemic. So we brought together all kinds of interesting people uh, to put this thing together. And I just thought it was funky and joyous and probably just a, a good tonic for the week or so that we're going to be passing through. <laughs> well, it is totally that. So this is, uh, the song title is Clickbait, and this is Corey Wong, and you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. <laughs>
All right. Well, here we are. We're back on the Apex Hour. And we're back on the Apex Hour. And that song was called Clickbait. And the artist is Corey Wong. Um, and Todd Peterson, who here in the studio, had a very specific, he, he chose all the music for today, had a very specific reason for choosing that song in relationship to our guest, author Brian Evanson. Todd, what was the reason? The reason was to be, just be a little bit of a troublemaker. And to try to, uh, in some cases, put in some music that might be a complete juxtaposition against what we're talking about with horror and um, sort of dark literature and some of the psychological stuff that was going on. Because Corey Wong is said, I am the music of joy. That's like what I do. And so I thought that would be fun to lead off with that. Cool. Plus, it's groovy. You know, it's an, after, it's an afternoon yeah, show. Yeah. So. Totally. Yeah. Joy voices versus horror. Well, let's get into talking about horror a little bit more. We have horror writer Brian Evanson here. We have author Todd Peterson and our SU faculty member Christopher Clark joining us here on the Apex Hour. What do you guys want to know about horror? Todd, we were getting into some cool conversations about that. Take us on that road. Well, I wonder if a good starting point is to say when we say horror, does everybody understand that in the same way? I mean, I think that some people think horror is uh, a certain thing, and it might be horror movies, slasher movies, Jason, uh, Halloween movies, or whatever. And then there's a sense that there's another kind of horror that has its literary roots, right? Like in Edgar Allan Poe, um, or some of these other kinds of uh, things, even something maybe as weird as Henry James' Turn of the Screw, which is kind of psychological. Um, and then there's uh, something I think that Brian's doing, which is occupying another space, maybe a third space of overlap um, that isn't um, strictly, you know, kind of like a slasher, but it isn't also not a slasher. Um, it's not about <laughs> monsters, but it's also not about monsters. And so getting a sense of what we mean when we're talking about horror is a good thing, but then also starting to say, well, okay, so what is it a writer does to make those things happen? Because um, it isn't just right something gross happening. Um, there's something else that's happening in that space. And maybe it's sometimes in the space. Christopher and I talk about this a lot between terror and horror and what's overt and visual and, and clear and what is happening maybe a little bit more on the subconscious plane. And maybe it's a little bit more about um, being disturbed and being upset by the things that you're doing. And so sometimes there can be terror or horror that's just as a result of the way the language works. And it's not about anything graphic at all. Oftentimes, Brian's stories, they are both at the same time, I suppose, graphic and not graphic. <laughs> Schrodinger's horror, I guess, something. <laughs> yeah. But I think maybe that we could throw that out as a starting point. Yeah. Brian, what do you think about all that? Um, well, so so I, I yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what, what Todd is saying. And I think one thing that's interesting when you start to think about horror is that there's two big impulses. And one is the idea that there's something supernatural that's coming. And, you know, and so the idea that there's something wrong with the world or there's something about the world you didn't know. And then the other is the stuff that you get with Poe where the idea that, that something is wrong with an individual you know, there's, there's, you know, they're going crazy in some way or, or something's happened to them. And so you have, there's something wrong with me and there's something wrong with the world. And then there's a third kind of horror, which I see myself involved with, which says, is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with the world? And the answer is yes. And so it's like you, you kind of are saying yes to both questions and playing around with that. And then for, for me too, I, I think horror is so much about mood 
Um, you know, I, I think often when people think about horror, as, as Todd's kind of suggested, they think of, um, you know, slashers or, or, you know, blood or gore or things like that. And of course, there's lots of horror that does that. But I, I think it's more about a certain kind of attitude or, or mood. And, and so much of the horror that I like is about suspense. And it's about things being suggested, but maybe not being quite certain in the same way that a lot of ghost stories do that. Um, there's a there's a great um, ghost story by a guy named Oliver Anions, where uh, almost nothing happens, and and you know the only kind of moment that you have a sense of who the ghost might be is he discovers a a hair in a drawer, and it's just he he writes it in such a way that it's just terrifying when you get to that point. Yeah. Um, or there's a writer named Robert Aikman who's one of my favorite writers, British uh, writer, um, who writes what he calls strange stories where. You don't always know exactly what's happening, but you just know that something is is off or wrong, and and that's something I just really admire is is this what I'd think of as almost quiet horror, that uh, um, you know where, where it has all the feelings of horror, but you don't ever necessarily get the payoff of like um, someone in a hockey mask running through the woods. Right, quiet horror. I like that kind of construct. Christopher, I think you were one who we, you and I were talking quite a bit about mood and atmosphere in Brian's writing and how appealing that was. And I wondered if you had any questions or thoughts that you wanted to share with him about that side of it. Um, well, I, I guess, uh, uh, kind of piggybacking a little bit off of, uh, part of Todd's question in terms of, um, how how you take some so for instance somebody like Robert Aikman who is writing these uh you know stories of quiet horror these strange stories um like what is the the process you go through for like generating that sense of unease right like is do you um do you have to start with like page one sentence one like something uh you know has to be off or is it something that kind of comes naturally in the process of writing or, or how conscious of you are you of it or not? Um, I, I think I'm conscious of, of looking for moments that begin to suggest in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tell a story a lot about an experience I had a long time ago when I was uh, walking across a, a parking lot um, uh, kind of right, right after the sun had gone down. And um, I, I was kind of halfway across and realized that there was a bird on the other side of the parking lot that was moving uh, really strangely. And, you know, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I got a little closer and, you know, it, it, I, I kept thinking, you know, maybe it's protecting its young or maybe there's a predator nearby or maybe this bird is injured. And I kind of watched it move back and forth and, um, you know, it would move a little bit and then it would stop. And I, I just, I, I kept on just wondering what was wrong with this bird. And it wasn't until I was about 10 feet away that I realized it was not a bird at all, but a leaf being blown around in the wind. Mm. And this, this is the kind of experience that we have all the time in life. So much about the way in which we interact with the world is that we, we misperceive or we make guesses about what's there. And then we have to correct those guesses and kind of the ordinary way of approaching that is, is, you know, you have something like this happen and then you say, Oh, it's just a leaf. Okay, I'm going to go home and have a have a drink or whatever. Um, and in this case, um, you know, I, I I think somehow I've kind of programmed my mind or tuned my mind in a way that when those sorts of things happen, I just keep on thinking about them. And and so you know, the the, the interesting thing about that experience for me is that um, 
even though there was no bird there, I had had an experience with the bird um, that had lasted for, for, for 10 or 20 seconds. And, and so, so that sense of being able to have these experiences with things that aren't there and the feeling of having that kind of taken away with, from you afterwards when you realize what's actually there is something that I, I feel is, is you know, pretty foundational to the way in which I think of horror and the way it operates, that, that kind of moment in which the, the world underneath your feet is taken away or, or feels like it changes in some ways. So, so, so much of my work, I think, is trying to capture that feeling and mm -hmm. and both show what what characters you know how the characters are feeling when they go through something like that and also pass it along to the reader as well do you feel that you're always on in that way you said you kind of train yourself to sort of linger in these experiences and i'm just thinking of in my musical life you know I, i'm always like got music spinning around or I'm always practicing or thinking about it. Do you, do you sort of constantly live in that state or do you turn it off sometimes and completely, you know, just go into another psychic, psychic place? Um, I, I think that that probably is my pathology. So I have a very hard time turning that off. Um, and, and I, I like it. I like that feeling of being a little unsettled. And, and so, you know, it both, both frightens me a little bit, but also I, I enjoy it. So, so I, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, I, I think generally I'm, I'm finding myself using um, little things in the world as, as uh, a, a springboard for imagination. Mm. And so that ends up being, you know, and I can give you an example of that. It's my wife and I, or the woman who would become my wife and I were walking through Golden Gate Park and there's a horse paddock in the middle of Golden, Golden Gate Park. And we just happened to come across on a day in which all the horses were lying on the ground. And I'd never seen horses lie on the ground before. It was very strange to me to, to see that. And um, I, I got a little closer. And, and I also, there was a moment, which probably only lasted three or four seconds, where I couldn't see the horses breathing or moving. And I thought, something has happened here. Something's gone on. Uh, and then, you know, a, a second later, one of the horses flicked its tail. And then, you know, talking to friends, um, who uh, are around horses a lot. Horses do lie down sometimes. I should know that since I grew up in Utah down the street from someone who had horses, but somehow I never saw those horses lie down. Um, and so, so again, I mean, that ended up being the basis for a story I wrote called A Collapse of Horses, uh, which is about someone who turns away before they realize the horses are actually alive and, and them going away kind of not sure what happened and, and the, the effect that kind of has on their notion of life. Wow, cool. Well, this, I, this sounds like something that runs in the background. Like, and maybe this is a bigger thing for all creative people. Like, what background processes are always running? And I, I find myself doing that. And my wife has all instructed the kids sometimes that if something switches, like I was in Smith's one time years ago and saw a person with something, a, a horrible, like, swear word carved into their forearm. And so they're going like, dad, come on, we got to go check out. And then my wife saw me seeing that and said, oh, don't worry, dad's writing. <sighs> and so it wasn't a moment. It's like Brian described earlier at the Apex event, like grab your phone or some yeah. way of capturing whatever it is that that point of interest, because later I'll want to unpack it and play with it like the cats play with a mouse or something and just see yeah. what's going to happen with it. But that's the active part. But I think I, I don't think there's a part where I am not ever yeah. thinking about something 
that could be written about. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I agree with I, that totally. I think that it's time for another piece of music, and I've got Lojo queued up. So, Todd, tell awesome. us why Lojo. Well, Lojo is a French band that has these North African influences, and I can think of a significant portion of our time together in graduate school where I felt like my life was French with North African influences based on everything you were giving us to read. Um, I think that just, just that whole kind of period. But this music is, uh, I think, representative of little chunks of really cool hybrid metropolitan Paris um, that's this kind of really cool scene where all of these uh, confluence of things happen. So this is Lojo. It's It's kind of crazy stuff. Okay. The song, my French is not very good, but Quelcundel, like Quelcundiel, uh, some woman maybe, right? Brian, you're probably the best. You have probably uh, have the quelcom? best French among us. Uh, Quelcom means some. And then what was the last word? I didn't uh, know. Del, D apostrophe L, woman, I think. Uh, something about her is basically Quelcundel. Something, something about of her. her. Okay, by Lojo, this is uh, KSUU Thunder 91.1.
All right. Well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. That song, um, we're translating it something of her, something uh, to her, uh, but the artist is Lojo, L-O apostrophe J-O. Um, this is the Apex Hour, uh, KSU Youth under 91.1. We are talking about writing and literature and horror in writing, uh, but we just listened to a song that was incredibly international, and we started thinking about, we started talking about uh, genre, like what genre would you give that music and international genres and, and all these things. And so we thought we'd open a conversation about some of the new and interesting genres, uh, that, that, that these authors here that are joining me are in interested in and working in. So Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of start asking about what was it? Weird. Yeah, weird. it was so weird. So um, in addition to being classified as horror, I've seen your work classified as capital W weird fiction. Um, so I thought you might be a perfect person to kind of uh, l- w- walk us through that term. What does that mean? Uh, what qualifies a piece as like a weird fiction piece? Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe uh, s- some examples of how you might distinguish it from um, like a straightforward horror piece, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of moments where horror and weird meet, or where science fiction and weird meet. Um, the the term originally comes from Weird Tales, which was a, a pulp magazine um, that was published, you know, in the in the early in the earlier in the 20th century, in 1920s, I think it started, and um, it you know published people like like H.P. Lovecraft and. Um, one thing that was going on with Lovecraft is you had a horror thing going on in his work and also a kind of like cosmic thing. And so the, the combination of those two things um, kind of definitionally seemed weird to people. But I think what happened is is the term has really kind of exploded and moved in different ways since then. Um, most recently, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer published this anthology called The Weird, um, which is massive, something like 1,200 pages. And it has in it, um, you know, stories that you might have originally been published as science fiction or fantasy or horror, but that have an element that kind of push them to the edge of those genres and have a kind of strangeness that maybe makes them feel like they're more similar to these other stories, even though those other stories were originally published in different genres. So, so I see the weird as this kind of attempt to recuperate um, voices that were kind of on the edge of, of different genres that maybe had something going on that made them have more in common with one another than um, with science fiction or fantasy or horror. So, um, yeah, and I, I think it's a productive space. Um, there's definitely with the weird, there's, there's a sense of strangeness that's part of it. Um, there's a sense of, of, of the bizarre. People are super resistant to like, defining it too precisely i think mm-hmm. <laughs> um um but i i do think it's it's usually there's an element of horror there's an element of the fantastic whether it be science fiction or fantasy and then it's the way in which those come together uh in in ways that can be be strange or surprising or i guess for lack of a better word weird i've wondered if there hasn't been like um weird as a modifier like there's could when i think of weird one of the things that comes to mind strangely for me is Michael Moorcock fantasy. <laughs> so Elric of Melna Bonet, but the way that it was originally like just sword and sorcery stuff. And then it starts moving progressively into this cosmic space. Like um, all heroes are one hero and all, and some of these kind of larger things, but it's still 
these little skinny pulp novels. Yeah. But then, but then they are tackling these larger um, right. things. I mean, it's really, in some cases, it's really psychedelic stuff, but it comes yeah. in. Ballard, I think, was one of the British writers that was kind of mm-hmm. bringing that into play at the same time that Moorcock was. But they were also pushing against um, conventions. So Moorcock, like, swears he was never influenced by Tolkien um, because everybody has to kind of contend with that. But it's a space for British fantasy that has that, that doesn't occupy that same space. Mm-hmm. So for me, I see it in the in fantasy writing, mm-hmm. but it appears yeah. in other kinds of things. There's like weird crime fiction. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, a lot of my stuff gets talked about as being weird crime. Um, yeah. Moorcock's a really interesting case. I mean, he was part of that magazine called new world, new worlds um, that published kind of new wave science fiction and published Ballard and Samuel Delaney and other people. And, and it was this attempt to, to take, a, you know, a genre that people knew and just do really different things with it. And so, so I think there is that notion of a weirding of a genre that you can do. Mike Kelly, Michael Kelly has just published a, um, uh, a, a, a magazine called Weird Horror. And so they're, you know, weird, but also trying to think about it specifically in a, in a horror space. But I, I think you're right. There's, there's these, this element of fairly radical people for the most part. Um, who seem to be taking genre and um, moving it in new, newer other directions. So I think there's also a political element to it, too, with contemporary weird. Not so much with Lovecraft weird. He was super conservative and problematic in all sorts of ways. But, uh, right. yeah. yeah th- that's a really good point. And, and, um, uh, and because you, you mentioned kind of new worlds and, and kind of this radical take on through new wave science fiction, I think um, another writer who who kind of navigates his space really well and has kind of self-identified as an anarchist is uh, M. John Harrison, yeah, uh, whose stuff is just incredibly bizarre and 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 the genre borders just are not neat and tidy at all. I mean, I remember reading Light and. At one point, it's a space opera, and then it's like a serial killer horror novel, and then it's mm-hmm. a contemporary drama, and and like I, it, it seems to change from minute to minute. Um, but it all kind of the themes are cohesive, and like the characterization is rich, and so the fact that the world is so bizarre and unsettling, um, it, it's yeah. still kind of anchored in that that very real human element. So, um, yeah. No, he's for sure one who I, I think is, uh, um, you know, very much involved. And in. I think he has two stories in the weird anthology that Anne and Jeff Vandermeer put out. Um, but Nina Allen just published a review of his latest book a few days ago in the Los Angeles um, Review of Books, where she talks about what he does with genre is he, he, he uses genre to like burn its own bridges. <laughs> and so he, he kind of has that, that, uh, light what you're talking about it's part of a trilogy and each of those um um, books in the trilogy takes apart science fiction in a different way or he has an earlier uh tetralogy called viraconium which just takes uh fantasy apart in really interesting ways um and and that i think is yeah i I think he's a great example i think I, i think he's someone people should definitely read so both he and, and Moorcock can be seen as working in a kind of science fantasy space too, where you feel like you're in a fantasy world and then start to get clues that no, you may actually be in a science fictional far future space. 
And so, so that kind of impulse to kind of confuse genres or, and it's also about unsettling the reader because you think you're reading one thing and then you realize you're reading something else. Um, that unsettling of the reader, I think, is something that's important to a lot of weird fiction. One of the things that you had us think about years ago in school, Brian, was this idea that authors are accompanied by a discourse that gives them a certain presence, like this author does this kind of thing. And once that author becomes aware of that, they can start to kind of hack that as yeah. well. And I think that that's an interesting thing. Like whenever I'm reading a Brian Evanson book, like your last book, the song for the, what is it? The ending of the world or, um, when we get to the story called shirts and skins. Oh my gosh. That I one. set it down <laughs> and I went, Oh no. Okay. <laughs> so this is now that title plus Brian Evanson. Before I even read it, I start <sighs> prepping myself for what I'm going to get. Now, thankfully that story went somewhere I wasn't even expecting, but do you think that sometimes writers that have a good sense of self-awareness can manipulate and play that? Cause they kind of know what people think they're going to get. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, that yeah, I, absolutely. And that's something I try to do even in the course of a book where certain stories are going to lead you in some way. And then I'll put a story next to it that kind of shifts your perspective a little bit. Um, but yeah, writers can take advantage of how people think you know, the expectations people have coming to them. Some of those expectations are based on genre and some are based on what they already know about the writer or what they think they know about the writer. You know, after I published my first book, Altman's Tongue, and um, left Brigham Young University, it's like it was very hard for me not to have people describe me as like um, the bad Mormon or the Mormon who does horror writing, um, you know, and, and that's like a, a, a label that it's very hard to get away from. Um, and so it becomes something that you begin to figure out ways to kind of play with and, and mess around with the expectations of it. Oh, that's interesting. So you did uh, in intentionally kind of take that moniker and and mess with it. Yeah, a, a little bit. And it depends on what I'm doing exactly. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I actually had a conversation with Dan Wells, who was the uh, who's a horror writer who also lives in Utah. And he, he was just very angry that he had not got to be called the horror writing Mormon before I did. <laughs> And when you hear that now, that, that a lot of time has passed, uh, is, is it pretty easy to sort of laugh at that? I imagine that at the time, there it, it might have been a, a more intense feeling about it. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing I found is that people um, call you what they want to call you. I mean, I, I think it was probably no one thought of me as a horror writer per se until maybe 2006 or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was Peter Straub um, blurbed one of my books and 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 mentioned literary horror on, in in the blurb and and then I started seeing that term come up more and more. And Peter actually, when he wrote that blurb, um, you know, wrote to me and said, "I just want to make sure it's okay that I call you a horror writer." And and you know, it was I, it was fine. It was interesting to me to just see what would happen uh, if I was called that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that. Uh, people often have this notion that they know what you're, you're doing as a writer. And then it's kind of up to you to begin to surprise them. And it's, it's partly, I mean, when you read someone, you want to be both rewarded with what you like about their work and also be surprised with something new. Hmm. So figuring out, you know, how to, to do that. And I think for, for me, it's tricky because I have two somewhat distinct audiences that read my work. Um, one is an audience that reads experimental and innovative fiction and the other is an audience that reads genre fiction. 
and they both are kind of keying on different things in my work. And ideally, you try to have the work be double-voiced enough that you can kind of, that different things can appeal to both readers. Oh, that's but, cool. but sometimes if you're in the same room with, with two of those people, it's like being in a room with your stoner friends and your church friends, <laughs> where it's like you can't, you know, they're both talking about something related to you, but, you know, it doesn't seem like they're talking about the same thing at all. That's so cool. Well, we might have time for one more question. We don't even have time for a last song. And then I have my last final question that I always ask my guests. So do either of you have a a question that we haven't touched on that you really want to make sure to get to? So I... So I, I do have a question about just uh, stylistic influences. So we, we kind of talked about your uh, genre influences and literary influences. Um, but uh, just in terms of uh, your writing style and kind of the sparse lean prose, like um, were there any writers or works where um, that, that kind of helped you develop that, that style? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's quite a few along the way, but, um, you know, very important to me early on was Raymond Carver, um, who I read, uh, actually when I was a student at, at the freshman at BYU, um, and, and just his kind of stripped down and spare style, I think was useful to me in terms of figuring out, um, you know, what I was doing. I, I wrote a book, which is about the book's called Raymond Carver's what we talk about when we talk about love. Um, and it's a book just about Carver and that book and the way in which it was edited by his editor, Gordon Lish, um, who ended up being the editor of my first book and ended up um, publishing a bunch of my stories in his magazine, The Quarterly. And so that that generally, I mean, that kind of minimalist uh, scene, I think, is something I came out of, even if I came out of it in a, a fairly different way, ultimately, than some of the other people in it. And, and I, I found for me, the most useful thing about that scene is just the way in which it kind of forced me to think very closely about language and the way in which language works and and sonic qualities of sentences and things like that. Cool. Thank you guys so much. Okay, I have a last question that I always ask my guests, and I'll, I'll tell it to you ahead of time. It's, it's what's turning you on this week. And when I ask the guests that, it could be, it could be anything. It's just a way for our audiences to get to know you in a, in a different way. It could be a TV show. It could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be a food item. We've had some people say their favorite lipstick. It could be anything at all that's just turning you on right now this week. So we'll go around the table and I'm going to ask Todd first because I feel like you always have something at the ready. So Todd Peterson, what's turning you on this week? Oh man, this is just too many things. I'm going to go with the thing that maybe is the um, most surprising. Okay. During the pandemic, I mean, it was pretty easy to kind of stay agitated. I could continue watching something like BoJack Horseman and then just get worse. (laughs) Um, But my wife and I discovered a British television show, reality television show called The Repair Shop. Okay. And it's basic. it's about these marvelous people in England who can fix anything. Anything. Clocks, broken pottery, broken furniture. And so these these kind of just regular 
folks, and this is again, I'm I, I'm totally on brand with what Brian said. These rural people with these amazing <laughs> possessions, and it's the opposite of Antiques Roadshow, where they would bring in something and say, "How much is this worth?" They say, "I don't care how much it's worth. Fix it." Uh huh. And so the show is about how they figure out how to fix it, or put a clock back together, or match a pattern on some old china. I love it. And I found it so soothing that we would watch it, and I would fall asleep, and it was like. A lullaby. It was maybe like Brian liking the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Like, I don't think people would have thought <laughs> that I would do this because I kind of like to write about the wacky stuff that I see happening yeah. in rural America. But it brought me so much peace and joy during all this kind of stuff. And they're they're shooting right now for another season and they'll they'll have more for us. But it's on Netflix and it's absolutely soothing and marvelous. But its fundamental principle is you can fix broken things. I love it. Which I think is a great mo- message for the moment. Yeah, it's called The Repair Shop. Oh, the Repair Shop. I want to check it out. All right. Christopher Clark, what is turning you on this week? Um, so I, um, I, I guess the, the thing that comes to mind is I just this week, um, finished up the latest Paul Tremblay novel, Survivor Song, oh. um, which is very appropriate for the season. Um, also, unlike Todd's, very stressful given the context of 2020. <laughs> um, it's basically about a, a new strain of rabies that gets unleashed and, you know, societal breakdown and zombies and um, really beautifully written, very, uh, very, uh, a, a deeply empathetic horror novel, um, very fast paced. Um it, um, it, and I think it's kind of in line with a lot of Tremblay's work where it, it just, he's very, very good at, um, opening sentences and opening scenes that have the highest stakes possible and it just gets higher from there. Um, and, uh, is really good at, at making things intensely emotional as well as, uh, you know, um, as anxious. <laughs> wow. Cool. Tell me the title one more time. A survivor song. Survivor song. Okay. Oh, that's already got me kind of excited about it. I might have to read it. And Brian Evanson, what is turning you on this week? Uh, first, I'll just say I really like Paul's book, uh, Survivor Song, as well. I think it's a terrific book. I like his writing a lot in general. And he's another of those people who are working in the horror space in just really interesting ways. Um, so my son and I kind of early in the pandemic, or maybe just before it started, we started reading um, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events together. And we read a little bit of it every night. Right now we are on the 11th book in the wow. um, series, and um, which is just great. Um, um, Daniel uh, Handler is someone we know a little bit, and he has such a wicked sense of humor. And, and it's so satisfying for me to read. And, and he gets parts of it and other parts maybe not so much. But... It's it's been just a, a pleasure for me to revisit those books, and that's kind of my equivalent of of the repair shop. I think this this kind of the comfort of people suffering badly in a fictional way, but in a very funny way too. That's fantastic! Oh, you guys had such great ones. I'm inspired by all of them. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I just would like to say thank you so much to Todd and Christopher for your time and taking time out of your day in the middle of the semester. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us from afar and uh, just being so generous with your time. I've so enjoyed getting to know you and, and thank you so much, all of you, for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Len. Thanks. It was great to be here.
Cool. Well, all right, everyone. With that, we'll say goodbye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.